0: Good morning. Good to see you here today. Thanks for choosing to worship with us. We'll be in Joel chapter 3 this morning. Joel chapter 3, specifically verses 18 to 21. But here's the deal. We are, I'm going to move this a little bit. We are uh, going to cover basically Genesis to Revelation this morning uh, in 32 minutes, something like that. Maybe 35, maybe 45. I don't know. Uh, but we have to, in order to understand uh, the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at today as we wrap up our series in the book of Joel. So I'd invite you to stand with me. If, If you're our guest, we say this phrase, the very words, at the end of the main text reading, just to distinguish God's word from my own. We'll be actually reading Joel chapter 3, verse 17 to 21. Here's what the Scripture says. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy. And strangers shall never pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine. And the hills shall flow with milk. And all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a mountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness. And the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. You could be seated. Uh, So if you're just jumping in on the last message of the entire uh, book of Joel... Let me catch you up briefly, so we have been studying this prophetic book uh, in the Old Testament, written to the people of Israel, and it came on the heels of an epic plague, a locust plague that had four waves in history for the people of Israel, destroyed everything, destroyed their economy, their agriculture, they did not even have the provision they need to bring the offering to God in the, in the way that he had chosen for them to bring it. They had nothing. It was the worst days. The book also prophesies of a coming army, a day of the Lord and a coming army from the north that would destroy Jerusalem. And we know that now on this side of history to be both Babylon and Rome. Today we come to the end of this, which actually looks forward to the future. The title of the message is a glorious Future, But I think we have to answer about four questions, which, enti- which makes us have to look at really the meta-narrative or the entire, the entire Bible in order to understand uh, Joel chapter 3, 18 to uh, 21. So, how many of you came in the room today having a very normal week? Just like mundane. You can raise your hand. Normal's not bad. Uh, I I like normal, actually, like mundane is good. Not everybody came into the room like that. Some people came in, they had the best week of their life. Some people came in the room with with experiencing the worst week of their life. And I just say, wherever you are today, as we jump into this, you need to hear the love of God in a very hard passage. You need to understand that God loves his people. And that's where we need to start. It gives us a lot of hope, and it gives us a hope for the future. So let's, let's, let's go through these four questions that I think we have to answer in order to understand the, the passage. The first question is this. How is God toward his covenant people? How is God toward his covenant people? So if you look at Genesis, uh, Joel chapter 3, uh, beginning of verse 17, it says, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Now, this is the covenant name of God. This is the name that he gave his people when they asked him the very first time, what is your name? He said, I am. I am the Lord your God. This is the covenant name of God. It represents his, uh, his refuge for them, his strength for them, his provision for them, his sacrifice for them, everything for them. You have to go back to Genesis chapter 15 in order to understand the implications of the covenant name of God. In Genesis chapter 15, we see God cutting covenant with Abram. Now, I want to show you an illustration, if we can get it up on the screens. Okay, so let's talk about covenant for a minute from an eastern standpoint all right so any butchers in the room some of you gonna butcher deer in about you know four weeks come on raise your hand you cut one open stuff came out right all right is that gross i mean at first the first time after that for some reason people like it especially deer hunters they start liking it like you get to gut this deer it's kind of disgusting and this is kind of disgusting what we're going to uh, what we're going to talk about so to cut co- covenant in the east this kind of covenant this kind of covenant between god and abram is a covenant between a greater party and a lesser party there's all kinds of covenants but this one is between a greater party god The sovereign king of the universe and a lesser party, Abram, a man, probably with idols in his pockets coming out of Ur. God called him, said, go to a land that I will show you. And, and he did, and God counted that to him as faithfulness. And so we come to Genesis 15, and God cuts covenant with Abraham. So what it means, and you can read it in the passage, is that they would cut, they would cut the animal from nose to tail. And in this covenant, it starts from a large animal and moves to, to smaller animals. They cut it from nose to tail, and they, they lay it open, kind of just like you see, down a hill in the desert desert and they create this sort of like blood path and the blood path is where the covenant is cut so in a in a in a covenant between a greater and a lesser party then the greater party would walk through he would set the terms of the covenant the greater party sets the terms he decides what this covenant is going to say. He says the terms and those terms include. Uh, here, here, here is the, the legality. Here's what you have to follow. And if you do these things. Then I will do these things. And the Lord says to Abram, I will bless you. Your children will be as many as the stars in the sky. But if you don't keep your end of the covenant. To the lesser party. The lesser party. They just have to keep the, their end of the covenant. If the lesser party doesn't keep their end of the covenant, then they have to pay. And so when you go back to that blood path for a minute, what happens is that the greater party, after the terms are set up, the greater party would walk through getting blood on his feet and say to the lesser party, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, may it be done unto me as it's been done unto these animals. Right? so this is serious. This is not a contract that you filled out, you know, to buy a car. This is a covenant and agreement. And in Abram's case, it's a covenant agreement between God, the sovereign king of the universe, and a man, Abram. And so the greater party passes through, may it be done unto me as it's been done unto these animals if I don't keep my end of the bargain. But then it requires the lesser party to have courage because that person has to also walk through this blood path through the blood getting getting blood on their feet and they say to the greater party who has the authority to literally smite them let it be done unto me as it's been done unto these animals if i don't keep my end of the bargain now look at genesis chapter 15 17 to 21 at the end of this passage detailing god cutting covenant with abram it tells about the walking through the blood path. In Genesis chapter fifteen, seventeen to twenty-one it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made covenant with Abram, saying, "To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites." You can thank seminary for that. Like I said all those words, all thoseites. There is no mosquito bites in there. You hear people change that. I and mosquito bites but they're not there here's the deal what's wrong with this passage what's wrong is this we, we get two theophanies so we talked about a theophany last week was like uh, smoke is a picture of God in the in the Bible, a picture of his spirit. Fire is a picture of God in the Bible. We talked about the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness, and a cloud, a smoke cloud, led them by day, a pillar of fire by night. We talked about when God's presence rested on the tabernacle in the desert, that there was smoke so everybody would know God's presence is there. This is a a picture of God. And so it says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot. God and a flaming torch passed between the pieces who didn't pass between the pieces Abram why does it never say that Abram passed through the pieces? Catch this. All the way back in Genesis 15, God is saying to Abram, the lesser party, uh, Abram, as the greater party, I'm going to pass through this blood covenant, make this blood covenant with you. I'm going to give you this land and bless your people and all of those kinds of things. Let it be done unto me as it's been done unto these animals if I don't keep my end of the bargain. That's the greater party. But then he says, for Abram, it says that Abram fell asleep during this. It says that he went through as a smoking fire pot, that's once, and a flaming torch twice. It's as if he said, while Abraham was sleeping, Abram, I know you can't keep your end of the bargain. I know your people can't keep your end of the bargain. And so he passed through as the lesser party and said to Abram, Abram, if you don't do what you're supposed to do according to this covenant, may it be done unto me as it's been done to these animals. And you know where that plays out? That plays out just outside the walls of Jerusalem, During Passover, when everybody's sacrificing lambs, and Jesus is crucified. Jesus is in Genesis chapter 15. And all through the Bible... God has been redeeming, restoring, even before the covenant was made, restoring his people, making covenant with his people. This is how God is toward his covenant people. He's like a father. He disciplines. Yeah, there were there was wrath. There's judgment in the book of Joel. He defends. He comes against their enemies in the book of Joel. He provides, gives them everything they need. He protects. He avenges. He even covers with his grace to the point of saying let it be done unto me if you can't keep the law. And he did the same thing for you O follower of Jesus. As you, your sin proves that you couldn't keep the law either. My sin proves that I could not keep the law either but christ while we were still sinning died for us this is how god is toward his covenant people i'm going to tell you the older i get i, I tell people all the time i thought i'd be more sanctified by now <laughs> right? and you can talk to an 80 year old and they'll tell you I, I thought i'd be more sanctified by now i am wholly dependent on christ for righteousness I am wholly dependent on Christ to be to be made right in the eyes of God. He did, in Genesis 15, promise the work that was on the cross. This is how God is toward his covenant people. Here's the second question. Who are God's covenant people today? Sometimes people get this confused, and when they come to a... Uh, a prophetic book in the old testament like the book of joel it becomes a question like who are god's covenant people we're talking about israel we're talking about the church who are we talking about at this point who are god's covenant people i just want to give you some scripture the prophet jeremiah said in jeremiah chapter 31 verse 31 to 33 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The house of Israel is all 12 tribes, the household of God, the house of Judah is the tribe of the lion of the tribe of Judah, King Jesus. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. He knew they were going to do it in Genesis 15. Though I was their husband, declared the Lord. Now that language is really important because you see that God sees his covenant with his people like a marriage, not to be broken. To be pure and holy and undefiled, that he will be with them and they will be his people. He uses this word in Joel chapter 3, so you shall know that I am the Lord your God. That word know is yadah. It's like a man knows his wife. It is deeply intimate. And so he says in Jeremiah 31 to 33, for this covenant that I will make the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The reason I show you that is that even for the Hebrew people in the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah, he was saying to them, a day is coming when there will be a new covenant. They knew it. From their prophets. They're looking for that, that smoking fire pot, that second one that makes this covenant right because they already know they can't keep the law. And they the, the locust in the book of Joel helps them understand it deeply. They cannot on their own keep the law. Hebrews chapter 6 isn't is, uh, chapter 8. This is in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 to 8. It says, But it as it is. Now, this is the writer writing to a Hebrew audience, same people who memorize Joel. Okay. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the The writer of Hebrews is quoting the prophet Jeremiah to say, a new day has come through Jesus. He's the mediator of this new covenant. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15, just to accentuate the point, therefore Jesus, he is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeemed them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant and the writer of hebrews is just saying like look jesus is the one that lived that second that second trip through the blood path out on the cross and because he never sinned and he walked through that blood path for us on the cross he now is the mediator of the new covenant he gets to decide how the covenant plays out and with whom? Hebrews chapter twelve, verse twenty-two to twenty-four. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the Living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the Judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks bet, a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, is not that is loaded, like four sermons loaded. The blood of Abel was shed by his brother Cain. Cain was jealous. Abel, Abel brought the offering that God wanted. God was pleased. Cain didn't bring the one that God wanted or asked for. And so Cain murdered Abel, and his blood spoke of righteousness. Well, the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, Jesus' blood sprinkled is way better than the blood of Abel. Way more pure, way more righteous. And because of that, he is the mediator of a new covenant. And you say to yourself, okay, I know who the mediator is. I know what a covenant is, but you still haven't answered my question, like, who are God's covenant people today? Romans, it's not as easy as, as you think, maybe it is and it isn't romans chapter 11 22 to 27 they were asking this question why did the jews not get it why did the jews not get it have you ever asked yourself that question like if i saw the parting of the red sea i would believe if you know i saw god leading us through the desert with a pillar of fire i believe if i saw a manna from heaven i would believe if i if i saw water from a rock uh, come out of a rock when i didn't have any water i i would believe the, the tragedy of the human condition is no you wouldn't but the Roman Christians were asking, you know, why, why did the Jews not get it? Why don't they see all the pictures, their feasts, their festivals? Jesus, you know, he's done it all. Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 22 to 27, it says this. Note then, the kindness and the severity of God. Do you hear the tension in that? The kindness and the severity of God. He's both kind and severe. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even then, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they, meaning the Jews, will be grafted in for God has the power to graft them and again for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree how much more will these the natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree lest you be wise in your own sight does anybody struggle with that doing what's right in your own eyes put it in plainer terms thinking you know everything So who is God's covenant people today? I wish I had an olive tree right here. If I had an olive tree, I would show you a cultivated olive tree. A cultivated olive tree can have a really, an old one can have a really wide base. And that cultivated olive tree is taken care of probably in a a giant olive grove. And it, it's tr- pruned when it needs to be pruned and it's picked when it needs to be picked and all the, that, that is the picture of the house of Israel, of Judah in the scripture. We are wild olive shoots. We're not a cultivated olive tree, the Gentiles, according to the scripture, according to Paul we are wild olive shoots so that means some bird ate an olive flew over here did his thing and an olive shoot sprouted up and paul is saying look what jesus did jesus took us me the gentiles who were far from god who didn't know god didn't even know his law And he took that wild olive shoot and somehow through his cross, he came over here to the cultivated olive tree and he grafted that wild olive shoot in. And now I, a Gentile, through Jesus, the risen Nazarene and part of the house of Israel, not the political house. The house that is the household of God, the kingdom of God. He says, this is kindness and severity. Their hearts have been hardened for a time. It goes so far as to say, their hearts are going to be hardened until the the nations, the Gentiles' faith makes them jealous. And then how hard is it for Jesus to, in their belief, bring them back into faith in him, through him, to salvation? It's not hard when the time is right. I met with an Israeli couple this week. They're uh, ministers, pastors, friends of some people in our church. And I was just listening to their story. and, and, And in the story, what came out was in their lifetime, they have seen the hardening of Israel begin to soften. So much so that the gospel is now going out from Israel to Arab nations. Did you know that the, when, when the gospel went out in Acts from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the outermost parts of the world, it grew and grew and grew. The kingdom multiplied, and through thousands of years, 2,000 years, it moved all the way to the west here. And do you know in the last 50 years or less... The the West was the center of the, the outpouring, the center of the growth of the kingdom of God. But do you know that all of that has moved back east where it started? I told them, this is no lie. You're living in the time, I believe you're living in the time... Where there will be sweet wine, milk in the land of promise. That the valley of Shatim will be watered from the house of the Lord. And they're like, we're seeing it. That's Joel chapter 3, 18 to 21. We live in, we live in the desert land now. COVID proves it. People who once came to church don't come to church, don't go anywhere to church. Why? Wasn't that compelling? Wasn't that important? We live in the desert west, in a dry and weary land, and we need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We are God's covenant people in Christ grafted in to a a cultivated olive tree. And as it comes to what I'm going to call the end of the beginning, the beginning of the end, whatever you want to call it, we will see that cultivated olive tree grafted back in through Jesus in ways. Third question, what will happen on the great day of the Lord? Because Joel speaks of it many times, the great day of the Lord. We see it in Joel chapter 3, verse 1 to 3, For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. So here's what's going to happen. By the way, do you hear what God hates? That's a whole nother sermon. what's going to happen what will happen on the great day of the lord what well, we get clearly and plainly and we will we will definitely dive deep into this in january as we begin our revelation series the lord will judge the nations in the valley of decision i want to show you a picture because this valley of jehoshaphat that we just talked about i hope i'm going to show you a picture i have glasses that's weird Well, whenever it comes. So, the the Valley of Jehoshaphat is also the Valley of Har Megiddo, or Armageddon. It's also today called the Valley of Jezreel. Jezreel. So, it's a humongous valley. It looks like an arrowhead. It stretches all the way from Bethshan, in the center of the country, to the coastal plain, all the way to Mount Mm, Megiddo, Mount Carmel. If you're in Nazareth, on the brow of the hill, you can look down. It's huge. It's amazingly huge valley. In that valley, we get geography repeated over and over again. There will be a war to end all wars. And part of that is that Yahweh, the covenant God, will judge at that time and what he is judging is sin he is at war with sin and wickedness we forget that i don't know why the whole bible says it but this is the final war and judgment will take place there i mean the the, the scripture lines it out different ways he'll, he'll separate the sheep from the goats that's one picture people who know God through Christ, people who don't it says it will be judged according to our works. Like I said earlier, I'm really glad Jesus clothed me in his righteousness because of my belief that it's just my belief is counted to me as righteousness because my works don't measure up. Nor does anyone outside of Christ have the ability to survive such a judgment. What will happen on the great day of the Lord is judgment. It's good for some, bad for others, glorious for some, a doorway into a a glorious future. And for others, it is destructive and devastating and a doorway into eternal destruction, according to the scripture. Fourth question, last question. What is this glorious future that we're talking about Joel chapter 3, 18 to 21 sort of details it from Joel's perspective. It says, In that day the mountain shall drip sweet wine, the hills shall flow with milk, all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and the mountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. So the first thing that we see in this glorious future is a picture of total restoration of the promise. This is all about the land that was discussed in Genesis chapter 15, given borders. And what God is saying is I'm going to restore it completely where it will be that land of milk and honey that was promised. There will be sweet wine, new wine, the best wine. Do you remember when Jesus... Changed the water to wine in Cana at a wedding. All the people were like, you saved the best wine for last? That's what this is. That's what this is. The best wine. It says that the hills will be flowing with milk. That means that there is just provision and promise. The stream beds of Judah flowing with water. Hey, I have walked through the stream beds of Judah so many times. There's never any water in there. It is dry. When you're talking about the Valley of Shatim, you're talking about just north of the, the, the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea and west, uh, I mean, east across the, the uh, Jordan River. And it is dry. It is a dry and desolate land where there is no water. And what... What we see is a glorious future where heaven has water flowing from the house of the Lord, watering even the driest of places like the Valley of Shittim. And that, that picture in Joel of living water is all through the scripture. So much so that Jesus would say, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. This is the glorious Future. It is a total restoration. It is a vengeance. In 19, it says, finally, there will be a time. It says, it uses foreign nations as the enemy. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. Uh, It's saying that the enemies of God, the people of God will be avenged at the expense of the enemies of God. Those that have come against God and his people. Vengeance of the Lord is part of this glorious future. Uh, In the scripture it says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. You know, vengeance isn't mine to take necessarily as one person, as one man. Vengeance is the Lord's. So the third thing we see is just a restored Jerusalem and inhabited by God and his people forever. If you look at 20 and 21, but Judah shall be inhabited forever in Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. He's just saying that this revelation passage, says there's a new Jerusalem. There'll be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. There'll be no sin inside the camp. Everything godless will have been put outside the camp in that day it's a complete restoration of all things and it is a glorious glorious future and it only comes through christ to his covenant people so what's our response that's a lot of content maybe you didn't know about the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch maybe you'll forget about it by the time you eat mexican food and go about your business i hope you don't How do we respond? Listen to what Revelation 22, 7 says. And this is repeated, and I'm going to repeat it for you. Jesus says, through the writer John in Revelation 22, verse 7, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So how should we respond? Maybe we should keep the word. Maybe we should keep the words close to us behold I'm coming soon blessed is the one who keeps the word who hears me and obeys me the words of the prophecy of this book Revelation 22 12 to 13 again he says behold I'm coming soon and here he goes and says bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done I am the Alpha and the Omega, that's the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense. There's this trash can. This doesn't make sense right now. It speaks to me. This trash can. It's located in East Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, it's green has a lion on it because we're in the land of Judah when we're in Jerusalem. And the people sit looking on the city across the valley of the Kidron Valley where Jesus walked across to his death. And we talk about everything happened in Jerusalem, lots of things. We talk about how he came as a lamb to be slaughtered on Passover. But I always see this, this this like this lion is speaking to me from this trash can the whole time I'm talking. Hour and a half, they'll sit there. And we talk about the lamb and the Passover lambs, all the slaughter. And at the end of it, I point to this trash can. And I'm like, even the trash can knows. The lion is coming. He came in like a lamb the first time. He's coming back like a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, bringing his recompense with him, his own words to repay each one for what he has done. Enemies of God will be judged and repaid according to their deeds. I mean, that is just that that should drive you to urgency for people who do not know Jesus. If I were judged according to my deeds in the valley of Jehoshaphat at the hand of the one who comes to bring recompense, recompense without the cross, without the blood of Christ, I am destroyed. I am destined for hell. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 says, If, for if, while we were enemies of God, we were enemies. In our sin. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. How much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life? You are being saved. You were an enemy of God. Some of you might be if you haven't confessed Christ as your Savior and Lord. It's not because. Any one person is better than anyone else. It's because your belief in Christ is the thing that will make you righteous. It is Jesus only. To be changed identity-wise from an enemy to his son is the greatest gift I've ever ever had. And it, it pays an eternal dividend. Revelation chapter 22, verse 20 and 21. Last verse, it says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. John knew they were going to walk. He didn't know how many years. He just knew the Lord was saying, I'm coming soon. And so they had to, we have to Walk out our salvation with fear and trembling. We have to walk hearing and obeying on the great days and the terrible days and the normal days, the mundane days, and all in between. And our hope lies in Him. Do you know this is as close, and in Christ, in Jesus, this life, these days, this is as close to hell as you will ever get. In Christ. But apart from Christ, think of the worst day on the planet. And that's as far from hell as you will ever get. It is Christ who is our glorious future. Who is our hope. Who Joel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and all the Old Testament prophets are pointing to and calling out to for salvation. So the question is this, like, what is your future like? What is your future like? That you have to deal with God on. I can tell you this. Scripture is clear. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We know he's coming back. Scripture is clear, very clear. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Just ask the Lord to speak to you. Lord, we hear your words and we long for that glorious future. We're looking forward to it. But we know between now and the moment you come back, whenever the father says, son, go get my kids. We have to walk with you. We get to walk with you. So, Father, forgive us for our apathy. Forgive us for walking in our flesh when we could easily be walking in the Spirit. Father, fill us with your Spirit fresh and new today. Awaken our bones, awaken our soul to this glorious future that you have in mind for us. And thank you that we can walk with you now for everyone. Whoever hears this sermon, God, I pray that they would be moved by the simple fact that you passed through twice. That when I couldn't keep my end of the covenant, you went to the cross, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for loving us and giving yourself for us. For any of you that have not confessed Jesus as your savior and Lord, you can right now pray There's no magic words. You simply just have to tell him, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. You're the only one that can rescue me from my own sin. You're the one who passed through twice. Died on a cross. I believe it. You rose again. I believe it. You're coming back again. I believe it. Ask him to change you, move you from being an enemy of God to his son, to his daughter. That comes through Christ, and your step is belief. God does the rest. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.